Good morning, friends. If uh, you are an employee, you know what it means to fulfill your job description, right? If you don't, then you're not an employee for very long, I'm pretty sure. Um, but uh, when, you're, when your boss expects you to do something, a good employee is that employee who will fulfill what his boss wants him to do, right? In today's sermon, I want to help you understand uh, the text that you just heard read, particularly verses 18 and 19. Um, Paul speaks of Jesus as being our boss. If we're in Christ, if we're in the church, he is in charge. He's over us. He's our leader. This is an important reality for us who, especially in our culture, Western civilization, we believe that we are independent and kind of doing our own thing with the, you know, power and right to do these things that we want. When anybody comes along and says, hey, I'm your boss, uh, we resist it, even in the marketplace, right? We have that as a common understanding. Well, I want you to understand today what it means for Jesus to be our boss, all the implications behind that. And hope, hopefully, challenge you to maybe think of, of your relationship with Christ and his church a little differently, or maybe a little more deeply, than you have. Concerning the importance of the text you just heard from Colossians chapter 1, the great Puritan Dr. John Owen wrote the following. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. So think of all the things we know about creation, the, the expanse, the excellence, the greatness of creation. Jesus' revelation to us of himself exceeds that infinitely. The, the creation, in other words, is just to give you a taste of the excellence of Christ. And then he continues, without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. If you don't get this, you're lost. You're in darkness, confused. He continues, this therefore deserves the severest of our thoughts. The best of our meditations and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness, that thing coming called heaven, shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation, that is now, of that glory as revealed in the gospel? that by view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Owen's point is, if Christ is exalted as he is revealed in Scripture to be, what better way to spend our time than to contemplate those realities now? And which is what Paul is doing for us in Colossians. Particularly in the text we've been kind of resting in for the past few weeks. 
verses 15 now through 19 today. An amazing paragraph of the revelation of Jesus Christ and all that he is relating to creation and to us, his people. In our previous two sermons, we looked at Jesus being the Lord or firstborn, the word Paul used, of creation. Today, we're going to look at Paul's statement that speaks of Jesus being the Lord of the new creation or firstborn of the new creation. Today, we'll, we'll look at this statement um, and realize that part of the new creation is the church. So he's Lord of the creation or the created order, the universe. He's also Lord of the new creation, which is made up of the church, you and I, if we're in Christ. And so here Paul says in verse 18, you'll need your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1, looking at verse 18 with me. Colossians 1.18, Paul says, And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What a mouthful. So let's look at these verses here and, and break them down phrase by phrase so that we can have a clear contemplation, as Owen says, of the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that this will be an encouragement to you today. First of all, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. There are two ways that we refer to the church. There's the local church, right? And then there's the universal church. Um, Sun Valley Church is... Uh, a local church that is part of the universal church. So this universal church is something that stretches back in time and forward into the future. Any and all of those who are in Christ are part of the universal church. And if you're in the body of Christ living like you are, you would participate in a local church. So we have the local church under the umbrella of the universal church. A true local church preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as it's taught in the Bible, and is led by qualified elders. So that, those are the things that make up a qualified, if you will, local church. They, they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, and it's led by a group of men who are appointed to leadership called elders. Without those two things, you're not in a local church. And so we have a local church here at Sun Valley that is part of the universal church because we are a group of Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians who glorify God in all that we do. That is our goal. That is our trajectory. Now, you remember from time to time that we recite the Apostles' Creed before we take the Lord's Supper. And there's a, a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that has at times, not irregularly, caused wonder and question in the minds of us who read it. We say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Do you remember that? Do we believe in a Holy Catholic Church? Well, we need to understand what the word Catholic means if we say yes to that. We say, yes, we do believe in the Holy Catholic Church, because 
it is a small c referring to the universal church. We do not believe in the Roman Catholic Church, right? We believe in the universal church, which is what the writers of the Apostle Creed meant. We believe that. We embrace that. We believe that there are Christians across the planet that are going to be in heaven with us someday, right? Right. We believe that there are Christians who have already died and who have yet to be born that will be in heaven one day with us. That's a reference to the Catholic Church, the universal church, small c. We're not Roman Catholics. Please don't get that confused. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has some significant theological and doctrinal problems, uh, and it's not the true church. Paul used the metaphor here in verse 18 of the body. You notice that? And he did so to describe the church. We are a body of believers making up the church of Jesus Christ. And this particular metaphor, the body, is unique to the New Testament. The church is also called, as you can remember, a flock, a building, a family, a bride, so forth. But the metaphor of body here is unique and powerful that helps us understand our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. It's a wonderful metaphor. Jesus is the head of this body, the head of the church. And that, that particular relationship is revealed in Scripture to have some significance. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, or uh, yeah, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, we learn that Jesus oversees his body and he does so to produce unity and mutual dependence. That is one relationship that we have with Jesus, our head. He oversees us to make sure that we are a unified group of Christians, as diverse as we are, we're unified and we are mutually dependent on one another. Jesus makes sure of that. We also see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that Jesus is about making us more mature, to helping us grow as individual Christians within this body. And then here in chapter 1, verse 18 of Colossians, we learn of his headship. He's in charge of us as a local body and as members of a local body. He's our boss. <laughs> He's the leader. And by the way, he has in fact given us job descriptions in scripture. Things we must do if we're going to be a part of this local body. And one way that, that I think is helpful for you to understand um, the extent of Paul's use of this metaphor, the body, is to understand that Jesus is the sovereign head. He says he is the head of the body. And there are two intended meetings by Paul. The first is this, the sovereign head. We learned a couple of sermons ago that Jesus is the first rank or firstborn of all creation, right? He created every molecule in the universe for himself, and he sustains the laws of nature, all the structure, all the balance necessary to keep the universe working. He's the Lord of the universe. In our text today, we learn that he, Jesus, has the supreme rank among all those who have been brought back from the dead. Spiritual death, that is. From spiritual death to spiritual life. The firstborn from among the dead. 
So if you've been raised to spiritual life through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is your boss. He's the Lord. He is the head of the church, and the church isn't a building. It's a, it's a group of people that have embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You can't be in the true church. You can be in a church building, but you can't be in the true church unless Jesus is your head, unless Jesus is your Lord. There's no other way to be here. So if you think that you've just somehow secured a ticket for heaven and continue to live your life by your own will, by your own agenda, come to reality, friends. That's not being a Christian. Paul is helping us understand that here in this text. Because Jesus created the church, just like he created the universe, he's Lord of both, right? <laughs> what makes him Lord of the universe is he created it. What makes him Lord of the church is he created it. It's his. So the church really has one leader, and it's not the Pope. It's Jesus Christ. That is the reality. He is sovereign over the creation. He is sovereign over the church. And so we know, because of the terminology we're hearing, that he is of first rank, firstborn. He is the head of the body. He's the beginning, the, beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn also has to do with the chronological reality. He was the first to come back to life. And you say, wait a minute, Lazarus came back to life before him. Yeah, but what Paul means is, besides the things I've already said, is Jesus is the firstborn from the dead to remain living. So Lazarus came back from dead, certainly. Jesus raised him, we've read that, right? John 11. But what happened to Lazarus? He died, he's no longer living. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and remains alive. He's the firstborn from among the dead to remain alive. We need to keep that in mind. He is the sovereign head of the church. He's also the source head, and that sounds a little odd, odd terminology, but let me explain it to you. The, this head idea that Paul is using, the metaphor, um, has an aspect that Paul intends us to understand and see. Not only is Jesus the head of the church because he leads, guides, controls, and organizes all things within the church, but Jesus is also the source of everything in the church. He leads the church, and he's the source of everything in the church. He gives life to the church and to us individual believers, right? Ephesians 2, you were once dead in your trespasses, but because of his mercy, he made us alive in Christ. He is the source of your spiritual life, our spiritual life, individually and corporately. And so Jesus is that source to us, just like a glacier is a source of a mountain lake or a spring is the source of a creek. This is why Paul elaborates on Christ being the head of the church by using the phrase, he is the beginning. All right, he, he, he's leaving nothing to the imagination. He doesn't want you to guess about what he means. He's the head of the church. He says, he is the beginning. That also includes chronology and source. He's the beginning. Chronologically, he's the source of all things church. 
So besides emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus over the church and affirming his primacy chronologically, Paul highlighted Jesus' creative, creative initiative as the source and founder of the church. He's the beginning. Have you heard this before? In the beginning, God? That is not coming to your mind just because I said it. It was probably already somewhere in there because Paul said he is the head of the church, the firstborn, the beginning. It's an intended uh, tool that Paul's making you think back to Genesis 1 who, where it says, in the beginning, God created. And so that's where our minds go, naturally and rightly. So he is emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus over the church, not only chronologically, but also highlighting the creative initiative of Jesus. Just as Jesus is the source of all creation that we can see and appreciate and enjoy, he's the source of all the new creation, the church, us. He invented creation. He invented the new creation. And it isn't a coincidence that your minds have already drifted back to Genesis 1.1. So <clears throat> he wants us to think of these two things together. Understanding Jesus' headship in the church is very important, uh, especially for us independent Americans. Uh, we, we, we don't default to this. It, it requires education, it requires convincing. Uh, but with the help of the presence of the Holy Spirit, it, we come to it sooner or later. When someone explains this truth to us, if the Holy Spirit is present, all of a sudden it rings the bell. And we go, oh, okay, I get it. It's not a, it's not a battle. We don't, we don't have to argue and debate about this. Um, it, it, if the Holy Spirit's there, it resonates in your mind and heart of what Paul is saying to us here. So if the church is a living organism and Jesus is the head, then our relationship to him is organic, right? It's connected, it's dependent, even submissive, just like our body parts are to our heads. For example, my fingers don't work too well if my head is detached from my body or I don't have one, right? The head controls every activity of the body, the tongue, the sight, everything is dependent on the head. It sends signals to the different body parts to keep everything organized and functioning well. It's amazing to think about all the work the head has to have with the body to be able to walk from here to there. It's amazing if you look into it a little bit. To keep our body functioning well, our, our brain sends signals all throughout our body to make sure it's coordinated. The activity between all diverse parts are working together. And he does this in the body of Christ in many ways including, listen friends, giving different spiritual gifts to different people in this room. So he has given you a spiritual gift that he hasn't given me and vice versa. And between the working parts of this body. This is why he is over, Lord over, head of, boss of the church. He says, this is your assignment, this is your assignment, and this is your assignment. Each of us has an assignment, and the Bible calls those spiritual gifts, which we are to exercise in the context of the local body of Christ. Because we can't have, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, an eye going out doing its own thing, like Marty Feldman. That's not okay to have one eye looking over here and the other one looking over here. This is why the, he is Lord of the church. Also, we see that he's the firstborn from the dead. I've already mentioned that briefly, but 
so that we don't miss what Paul is saying, he adds the next phrase, the firstborn from the dead. He used the same word to describe Jesus as back in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, first in rank. He's the firstborn over his church. He's the leader. And when we say from the dead, the church is made up of people who have died, right? The people who have died are still part of the church. Remember, he said, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were dead at the time. So I am the God of, rather, the, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they were already dead. And yet Jesus said to Moses in the burning bush, yeah, the second person of the Godhead who was the one speaking in the burning bush, the one who walked on Galilee was the one in the bush. I am the father, or I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he is, in fact, Lord of the dead, just like he is Lord of us, who are alive, who have yet to go to glory. So he's, he's, the church is made up of people who have died and will die, just as he is Lord of all believers, believers who have died and gone to glory. He's, he's Lord of all those who remain physically alive, but were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Most significantly, I want to rest on this for a second, Jesus is the firstborn in rank of all those who were spiritually dead. And all of us in this room who know Jesus were at one point spiritually dead, right? And not spiritually asleep, spiritually dead. Just as, which is why the apostle included the story of Lazarus in John 11. He wanted that to be an illustration of what we are like spiritually, or dead. Uh, and remember what uh, Martha said to, to Jesus, oh Lord, he's been dead four days, he stinks. Uh, and then Jesus said, come forth. That's what he does to you and me. We stink, and then he says, come forth. And we do, right? Everybody he calls comes, according to John 10. And so this is what we see here in this text. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. If you want to look ahead, just a few verses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, that, that is, our, we are connected through Christ. We are baptized into Christ through, by the Holy Spirit in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we are connected to, we identify with Jesus Christ. We're baptized into him by the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 3, verse 1 refers to the same idea. If you have been raised with Christ, raised from what? From the dead. The only way you can be a part of a local church, the only way you can have a relationship with God is if you've been raised from spiritual death. If you remain spiritually dead and the truths of Scripture have no influence or impact upon your heart and mind, you don't have a relationship with the head. You're still dead in your sins. And so all those who have new life owe their life to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, the boss of the church. Let's, let's now unpack what that means, and we can get there by seeing his last phrase in verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's the firstborn, the head of the body, the firstborn, the beginning, all these things so that he might pre be preeminent. Now, 
you can say, I understand him being preeminent over the universe. Okay, I get that. I understand him being preeminent over the church. Fine, okay, I'll, I'll grant him that. But preeminent over me? Hold on. So let's get this. We just reviewed over creation. We spent the last two weeks on it, verses 15 through 17. He's preeminent over the creation, isn't he? <laughs> he holds it together with the power of his word, according to Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and Hebrews 1, 3. But he's also preeminent over the church, as I just got through arguing with you, or actually explaining Paul's argument with you. It's because of his perfect life. It's, it's the, the person and work of Jesus Christ that saves us. And his work included his perfect life, and that perfect life is credited to all who will embrace him. If you come to Jesus by faith and embrace him as God and your Lord and Savior, he grants you or credits your account perfection, which is required by God. If you don't have perfection, you will never see the Lord. You will never be in heaven without perfection. That scares some of us until we understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, we understand and learn that Jesus' perfect life, his perfect every detail, never sinning, that is credited to your account. That's an amazing reality. God allows Christ's perfection to be our perfection. He takes our sin, our failure, and gives us his son's perfection when we embrace him. And so this when we do so, we are granted access or entry into the family of God. And his wrath against us ceases. He becomes first place in our life. And, and from the day we come to faith until the day we see him face to face is a progress of sanctification, becoming more like him. Right? Romans 8.29. Paul lays this out for us fairly clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I don't know if this is on the overhead or not. If you want to follow along, you can flip right over. It's only a couple pages to your left. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 says, And being found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. There's that kingly, kingly submission. We're submitting to the king. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is Lord of the creation in every aspect of it. He's Lord over the new creation, including the church, um, and in every single believer who makes up the church through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. He is Lord of everything. The creation, the new creation, all things were created by him and for him. So... <clears throat> How is this possible that Jesus is all this? And, and to, to avoid the canned answer, well, he's God, the apostle Paul includes verse 19, and it's helpful. Verse 19 is pretty amazing. He says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I'm not sure we can comprehend all that. He, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Let me give you an interesting sidelight that will help you understand this. The word God is not in verse 19 in the original language. It's an addition by the translators. Theos, the Greek word God, is not in 
Verse 19. So what are we talking about here? It literally reads the following. For in him, follow me, for in him was pleased all the fullness to dwell. That's a literal translation from the original language. For in him, speaking of Jesus, was pleased all the fullness to dwell. We might wonder what this strange sentence and sentence construction might mean, which is why the translators added the word theos or God. But we need not get anxious, Christian, about this, because we can look down at chapter 2, verse 9, and Paul lays it out for us who might be confused here in the 21st century. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. So he expands on the fullness idea. But that is unnecessary, really. If you, if you know anything about the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, and occasionally in the Septuagint, the text refers to the glory of God, the fullness of God, simply by saying the fullness. In fact, that happens more often than the whole sentence. It more often in the Septuagint says the fullness instead of the fullness of God. It's a Jewish idea of, that refers to all the glory of God wrapped up in one place. The fullness dwelt in the sanctuary. The fullness was seen in the skies. The fullness in the heavens and so forth, Psalm 19. So the fullness of God is a reference to, or the fullness rather, is a reference to the fullness of God. <laughs> and when we, when we get to this particular verse, if we're reading chronologically through Scripture, it doesn't confuse us if we don't see the word God in verse 19. Because it's already come before hundreds of times. The fullness Dwell, dwells in Jesus. Let me read for you John 1.16. You've read it a hundred times yourself, but now with this new perspective, listen to it again. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From everything there is about God in Christ, you have received abundance of grace. So, getting back to the, the verse, verse 19, if you have a pen or a highlighter, highlight the word all. It should be in all caps, capital A, capital L, capital L, because that's how Paul emphasizes it in the original language. It, all the fullness, not part of the fullness. The false teachers in Colossae at the time of this writing were saying that parts of God may have been present in Jesus, but he was not the God. They would say that each of us have parts of God. I see parts of God in you folks, right? When you demonstrate kindness or love or respect or honor or humility, those are parts of God. In the same way, Jesus was demonstrating parts of deity. That was their teaching. Paul's saying, no, all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ fully God. So Paul's words here in verse 19 formidably contradict the Colossian heresy viewpoint. 
Jesus was all the fullness of God. It's the difference between a shotgun and a rifle. If you people will follow me here, a shotgun shoots shells that have many small pellets, right? By a, 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 a small bit of gunpowder propels these many pellets, hundreds of them if it's small enough shot, out to wherever you're shooting. But a rifle, on the other hand, shoots only one large projectile, a piece of lead or brass, right? It shoots, it shoots one using similar amounts of gunpowder. The shotgun shell pushes all these beads out of the barrel, uh, each with its portion, its portion of the gunpowder. But the rifle pushes out one projectile, and it has all the power behind that one shell which is why we hunt larger animals with rifles instead of shotguns. So it's the same way here with Paul in verse 19. All the gunpowder of God is focused on one individual named Jesus Christ. That is the reality. It's not a shotgun approach and maybe he has that part, that part, that. No, he has all the power, all the gunpowder of God in Christ, the person. Now we get down to the question of the text. Does he have preeminence over me? He's preeminent over the creation. He's preeminent over the church. This, this person who is all the fullness of God is over the creation, is over the church. Is he over me? That's the question I want you to grapple with here in the next few moments. Is he preeminent in my life? If Jesus is king over all, what ought to be my response to these truths? If he is number one in rank in creation, all creation, in the church, every local church, the universal church, where is he in my life? When I walk out the door Sunday morning, do I walk out and get into my car with the realization, the active realization that he is my Lord, my boss, preeminent over me? So how would this look if he were? I've got some ideas for you. First is this, there would be a humble submission in your life to him, a humble submission in your life to him. If we have experienced the new creation by being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if we have seen his work of transformation taking place, then we must release the controls of our lives and submit to his authority, his guidance, his agenda. Once we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he's our Lord, <laughs> right? We, we submit to his agenda. We follow his rules. As an employee follows his job description, Christians follow our Lord's job description for us. He is the head of the universal church and he directs the activity of, of all church members. This means that everything we do at Sun Valley Church as a local church must fall in line with the will, the heart, the purposes, the agenda of Jesus Christ for local churches. And guess what, it's revealed. We don't have to guess what it is. I wonder what this church ought to be about. 
<laughs> if you ever hear churches asking that question, leave. That is not a question we get to answer. We already know what the local church is to be about. It's clearly laid out in the New Testament. We follow those commands. We follow his leadership. So, for example, when the Bible tells the church that we must pursue unity, we do it. We pursue unity. When the Bible tells us that we should put aside anything that would disrupt our unity, we do it. We resist cliques, we resist gossip, we resist, resist self-promotion in the body of Christ. When the Bible tells us that we must pray, what do we do? We pray. I mean corporately and individually, but corporately. When the Bible tells us that local churches must read the scripture, we read the scripture. Not just, it's not like a special Sunday when we read the scripture. Uh, we read the scripture and then we say, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Every single Sunday. You'd be surprised how many churches don't do this. Churches. And when it says sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Hence, are singing. And you say, well, I don't have a very good voice. There's, there's no qualification for that. Make a joyful noise. That's all that we're asked. It says to confess your sins to one another. You know that the number one reason people have left Sun, left Sun Valley Church is because we confess our sins to one another? That is a fact of our history. Why do you guys always uh, confess, confess, beating me down? No, it's part of understanding the, God, the grace of God. Friends, if you don't understand your sin, you don't understand his grace. Hence, we obey scripture when it says, confess your sins to one another so that we'll get the gospel. How many churches do that? Very few. When it says to preach the word, we preach the word. Our leader is telling us how to do church. And we do it. It's not something we get to invent. Next week, we're going to have chicken chasing. No. No. I do that all week, except on Sunday. Why? Because Sun Valley Church is Christ's church. It's not our church, it's his. Friends, if you're a believer and have embraced Jesus as your Lord, then you will find yourself actively involved in the church. Why? Because we're commanded to be actively involved. It's not something that we think is good for this church and will grow our membership. No, it's because the Bible tells us if you're in Christ in a local church, you must be actively involved. So this means that you'll be serving with the spiritual gift that God has granted you for the benefit of this body. The Bible tells us that we are members of a local body, the local body of Christ, like, we are, like our body parts are members of our bodies. How would you like it if your right hand went on a rebellion today. 
I'm not doing it. I'm not turning that key. I'm not, no, can't make me. Really? Then you're not part of the body, right hand. Local churches, friends, <clears throat> that participation that is required of us in the local church is a command of God for your good. It's not that Jesus needs you. It's not that Jesus needs any of us. He gives us these things as blessings to us for our good and our joy. Humble submission as members of his church <clears throat> over which he is the head includes putting yourself under the spiritual authority and guidance of your local church leaders. And you say, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, glad you asked. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate, imitate their faith. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who would have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, this is Christ's church. So the first response to Jesus being our boss is humble submission. The second is loving obedience, some of which I've already touched on. It's not begrudging obedience like we've seen some of our children do. It's like the little boy who was told to sit down and sit down and sit down at the table and finally after threatenings, he sat down and with a you know, scowl on his face and his dad goes, what's the problem? He goes, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> Some of us have children like that. Some of us are like that. <laughs> Look at what Jesus said in John 14, 15. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus? You demonstrate that by keeping his commandments, not by saying, I love Jesus, or by singing, I love Jesus. No, it's by obeying his commands. And then in, in chapter 15, just literally one chapter later, Jesus said that our obedience to his commands demonstrates that we are in a loving relationship with God. You want to know whether or not you're in Christ? Jesus says, this is how you know. Look at your life. Are you obedient or not? Our new life in Christ, friends, is responsive. And it's responsive to the commands and desires of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be quick to obey scripture. Out of love for Jesus, we will be spring-loaded to respond quickly, enthusiastically, and joyfully to all opportunities to obey him. Then in John 15, 12, Jesus said that his commandment is that we are to, here's the good one, love one another. You want to know if you're in Christ, you'll obey his commands. You want to know if you have a growing relationship with, with God? This will be a common reality in your life. You'll be quick to obey. Obey what? This command, love one another. This is the primary command that Jesus was concerned with. 
John 13, he said it. John 15, he said it again. This is my commandment that you love one another. And here's the kicker. Just as I have loved you. That, that kind of adds to our anxiety, doesn't it? How am I supposed to love you just as Christ loved the church? I know how Christ loved the church. For Pete's sake, he died. He, there it is. He died for us. He laid down his life for us. Are you laying your, down your life for anybody? Anybody? Anybody in the church? Um, and this leads us to the third description of what it means to, to have Jesus as preeminent in our life. Sacrificial service. Loving each other as Jesus loves, as Jesus loves us, as I've said, is a tall order, but it's an unmistakable order. Um, his, his apostles picked up on this, though, didn't they? They all write about it. Um, let me read for you and close our, our service, our sermon today, with just reading some of these calls to loving service. John, 1 John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, since Jesus initiated the church that we should love one another. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for the brothers, the people in this room. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You can do this all day long and it's not love. First John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's his commandment. Believe in Jesus and love each other. Love God and love people, we've heard it said. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Logical progression. And then finally, 1 John 4, 21. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you love your brothers? Can you prove it? In what ways? So friends, we sacrificially serve Jesus by sacrificially loving and serving each other. This morning as we serve you the Lord's Supper, I wanna ask you to examine yourselves. I want you to examine yourself to see if in fact Jesus is preeminent in you as he is over the universe and the church. Just go through your life as you walk up the aisle assuming you know Jesus if you know Christ and you're coming forward, consider whether or not he, has, he is as preeminent in your life as he is in the church and the universe. That's my challenge to you this morning. I'm gonna read for you from the, the uh, words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, and then I'm gonna pray over the elements, and while I pray if the elders will come that will, are going to help me serve. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Pray with me. Father, we, we come again into your presence submitting to your word, humbling ourselves before you and before your word. Holy Spirit, draw us, convict us, encourage us. I pray that we would see afresh the preeminence of Christ in our own hearts. Help us to do uh, honest examination now. Um, do business with God right where we sit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be hovering over with our congregation um, touching different hearts and souls with words of encouragement, with thoughts of repentance, these things necessary to be in a true, authentic relationship with you. Father, now we come uh, to this table, the Lord's Supper, expecting the promises made to us concerning your blessing us through these things, through these elements, to be true. We come in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.